Welcome back to the Mandarin Blueprint Podcast. My name is Phil Crimmins, still coming to you from Belgrade, Serbia for the time being. And today, before we get started in the podcast, I want to talk to you about our newsletter. Have you signed up for the Mandarin Insights newsletter? If not, you can do so in the link below. I will leave a link in the show notes to sign up for the newsletter. It is a really awesome newsletter, and here's why. So every two weeks, Luke or myself alternating does our best job to write a newsletter that is either motivating or inspiring or teaching you something about habit building or teaching you something about specific actions you need to take to succeed with learning Mandarin because Mandarin is a long-term journey. It's something that you need to keep consistent habits with. Even if you succeed at reaching fluency within like say a year, you're still going to need to keep the habit of coming into contact with it every day. So you want to remain motivated, keep inspired. And one of the ways to do that is to engage with our newsletter because we're going to do our best to give you just, we're just going to put our best foot forward and try to explain what we've learned and the wisdom we've acquired over all these years of studying Mandarin. And so if you want to get involved with that, again, the link is in the show notes. It's free. It's like many of the things that we put out. Our podcast is free. Our Mandarin Insights newsletters is free. Uh, we're going to be putting out way more stuff on our social media channels coming up. Our YouTube channel, Mandarin Blueprint, um, at Mandarin BP on Twitter, Mandarin Blueprint, all one word on Instagram, and we're going to be on TikTok. And I think we, you know, we just are doing a bunch of stuff online to share more free resources that will help you get to fluency and stay motivated the whole time. The other thing we're going to be doing is talking about the most recent newsletter on the podcast because this will make the podcast more interesting and again like i said before the newsletter is luke and i doing our best to pull out and extract the best wisdom we've picked up over the past 10 years and in that process we know that there's some people who like reading there's some people who like reading a, an email and a newsletter but there's some people who would prefer to watch things in video format so we'll be doing both and so Keep subscribed to the podcast. Um, by the way, if you've never left a review for our podcast, we actually found out that we have a bunch of reviews that are uh, pretty good. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, and uh, we'd be thrilled to get them if you would like. So without further ado, here's the story coming from the most recent Mandarin Insights newsletter. And to start off, I'm going to give you the theme of this newsletter in Mandarin. Let's see if you can understand it. Uh, and let, let's see if you can understand it without any translation. So did you catch that? I basically said, whenever I look back at the scope of my acquisition of Mandarin, I can't help but recognize that the essential bedrock of my success was that I grew the hell up. And so to give a little context to that, I moved to China when I was 23 years old, but I didn't start learning Mandarin until I was 25. And, you know, why did I wait two years? Well, it's kind of because I was living out a bit of an extended adolescence and extended university time. And I think a lot of people can identify with that. So let me just get into what I'm talking about here. When I moved to China at 23 years old, I was just inundated with shiny objects. I was in a brand new city, Beijing, with a new culture and food and experiences. And while all of this was wonderful, it did allow me to remain distracted from a sort of creeping feeling that I wasn't really improving as a person 
in a measurable way or taking responsibility for my future. I was kind of just, like I say, an extended adolescence going on. And, you know, the expat drinking culture was highly alluring and, you know, undeniably super fun because at the end of the day, if you go out on a Friday night in Beijing, who are you going to meet? Well, you're going to meet somebody who shares something in common with you they moved to China, but they're from Sweden or India or Australia, New Zealand, Canada, another part of the States. They're from, you know, some place in Africa, and you're going to be really excited to get into a conversation with somebody like that. And so it's super alluring, super exciting, and making conversation and friends was, well, it was just easy because everybody had something in common. And so it was a really fun time. But the problem, however, was that most of the young people in this community were staving off adulthood like I was and doing their best to kind of extend the university party life. And, you know, people back home, what were they doing? Well, they were starting careers, they're getting married, they're having kids. The young expats in Beijing, well, teaching English hungover and finding any excuse to head over to Sanlitor or uh, Wudaokou, which are kind of nightlife areas in Beijing, you know, to go there and dance and get wasted and hook up. And, you know, when I look back at that time, it's fair to say that I wasn't trying to build a career. I wasn't trying to gain important skills. I was just trying to pursue the pleasurable experiences in life and as frequently as possible. And, you know, don't get me wrong. I have no regrets about moving to China. It was in many ways the greatest decision of my life. But it did require me to go through a period of uh, sort of a downfall, the the moment when the Peter Pan, I don't want to grow up phase had to come to an end. And so let me talk about what that downfall was. So it's 2012. I transitioned from teaching English to drumming as my primary source of income, which is a whole other story. It was super thrilling. And I mean, making a living playing drums, it was awesome, but it was also illusory. I wasn't saving that much money because I just assumed it would keep coming in because I actually had quite a bit of success in the spring summer of 2012 and I was like yeah I'll just keep getting gigs and like I'm just uh, you know I'm flush right now I'm rolling in it I, so I didn't really plan for the future in that way I didn't think like oh I had a good weekend let me save that away I went like oh I had a good weekend let me have a even more fun time in Saint Lutoire right yeah so I was not saving much money and then I didn't realize because I started making my primary income in spring of 2012, that by the time winter of late 2012 and 2013 was gonna roll around, that the gigs for drummers and bands really dry up in Beijing because it's super cold and most people wanna have their events in the warmer weather. So I didn't know that was coming. And so I was completely unprepared and I was spending all my time and money on short-term pleasure. So my money in my bank account started to dwindle as the gigs dried up. And I remember, I acutely remember, it was December 2012, and I was walking around the central business district of Beijing, and I had 90 kwai in my pocket, and that was all the money I had to my name. So if you don't know, that's about $12.50 US. So it was grim. I remember just feeling absolutely terrible the bill had come due for all of my pleasure seeking and the price was a truckload of involuntary suffering because i felt terrible i remember i thought to myself at the time like i couldn't even afford to take a girl out on a date right now which just is i'm sure that a lot of 
young men can probably uh, empathize with the fact that that's a pretty dark feeling to have because you feel like I not even it's not even just that I couldn't be a successful person who you know gets a lot of the things that they want out of life it's that I can't even like go out to dinner you know it's just very dark and it was grim and that was probably the most psychological agony I've ever experienced and as we all probably know quite well there's no better teacher than pain pain will make you sort your crap out you know really quickly so from there came an opportunity in a glorious stroke of luck. And I do not uh, deny that this was very lucky. I got a phone call about a drumming job in Chengdu, China. And it was a nightly gig at a new nightclub that was opening. And it was not like I had a choice at the time. I had 90 Kwai to my name. So I accepted the job. And in that moment, I vowed, I was like, I would not waste this opportunity. It paid well. I was like, okay, I'm going to really work hard. We practiced every day. We performed every night, seven days a week. There were no days off. And I knew it was time that I grew the hell up and started sacrificing for my future. You know, I finally understood you know, in my bones that sacrifice is about choosing voluntary pain now to avoid involuntary pain later. And that pain is usually worse. I mean, certainly it was worse when I was walking around the central business district of Beijing feeling as low as I've ever been. And so I'm working at this nightclub playing drums every night and I finally have the way to get into my redemptive arc. So this is how I could sum up the details of how I turned my life around. I started making my bed. That was one of the basic things that I started doing. And it's funny, I actually just this morning saw an Alex Hormozy short where he was making fun of people who were like, just make your bed and you'll you'll succeed and whatever. He's like, I made a million dollars and I didn't make my bed. Oh, how did I do it? It's not about the specific thing of saying like making your bed turns you into some kind of guru. It's not that. It's just that making my bed was the thing that taught me that when you wake up and you do something that is a sacrifice for the future. It's minor, it's just putting some sheets over the bed, but it is something that is slightly inconvenient. You don't really feel like doing it, but you just go, this will make me feel a little bit better later. And that sets you off on a path for the rest of the day. If you do the next thing that's in a similar way, that is kind of like being nice to your future self. It's taking care of yourself. Like a lot of it is just uh, a sort of love that you're giving to your future self by not taking from it now and being selfish from your present self, you're going like later, I will really enjoy that I have this nice bed to get into. So that's what I started to do. I started to look at everything in my life and go, how can I sacrifice the present for the future in some way? And, you know, it may be mildly inconvenient to do this stuff, but the attitude travels through your day and then your week and then your month and then your year and then your life, right? So this is something that you might think is minor, and uh, far be it for me to disagree with Alex Hormozy. He's a much more successful businessman than I am. But I think that, that first choice makes a huge difference. That attitude has kept me committed to Mandarin Blueprint and ultimately, you know, Mandarin in general my whole life since then. So whether you apply this suffering-induced wisdom to Chinese learning or really anything else, it's not only the stick of avoiding future pain that ought to motivate you. Like, oh, I don't want to have this grim feeling of having no money while walking around the central business district of Beijing. Like, yeah, sure, that sucks. And that is a good motivator. But remember, too, that there's a carrot as well. Every day, 
every day I feel immense satisfaction that I can consume and communicate in Mandarin. That's the carrot. I feel incredible pride and, and accomplishment. It's not so much pride. It's more like accomplishment and satisfaction that I have achieved this seemingly impossible goal, but it was just about daily consistency. And so there is still a deeper pearl of wisdom that I found that I think is more profound during this time. I also got this from developing an exercise habit, which is that in the decade I've spent putting the pain, quote unquote, first, and the satisfaction second, I've realized that when you experience how this cycle of suffering and satisfaction works, the pain becomes pleasurable immediately. Let me say that again. When you experience how this cycle of suffering and satisfaction works, the pain becomes pleasurable immediately. And when I know that I'm improving my skill in something because I'm sacrificing my present for my future, the quote unquote pain actually feels good. Right. And it's the same thing. Like, for example, when I'm running and it's painful, but I'm realizing that I'm improving my capacity, my lung capacity, and I'm getting stronger and I'm getting that cardio workout that I know is so good for my brain because I'm doing it in that moment, I actually start to get that pleasure. And that pleasure leads to a runner's high, which is actually incredibly pleasurable and painful at the same time, because, you know, running is painful. There's no way around it, but it does feel good knowing that I'm taking care of myself in that moment. And this convergence of the pleasure and pain, well, this is what the Taoists have been talking about for millennia. Pain and pleasure are two sides of the same coin. They even made a neat little symbol to represent it, the yin-yang symbol. And I actually like it too, because when you run from pain, when you run from the yin, you know, out of the black part into the white part, what happens is you end up getting sucked into that little black circle that's in the white section of the yin-yang. And then that pulls you back into the drowning in the negativity. So when I was pursuing pleasure and running from the pain, you get sucked back into it and completely immersed in the pain. And so you're that's what ends up really happening. So what you want to try to do is instead is ride the middle. Do the things that are slightly painful now so that you can have those pleasurable experiences. And a lot of times it's like you've got a foot in both. So you're kind of having the pain and pleasure at the same time. I kind of imagine it like, you know, as I'm doing the deadlift, I'm enjoying the time on the couch with my wife. As I'm running and feeling the uh, pain of cardio, I'm having that enjoyable dinner where I am even more satisfied by it because I it's coming after a big workout or I'm going through my flashcards and struggling to understand something in Mandarin but then later I'm having the conversation they all are two sides of the same coin they they live in each other and when you can ride that middle that's when you can actually find some degree of contentment in life because there is no such thing as a fully pleasurable life that has no pain at all. And so we might as well accept that pain and pleasure are two sides of the same coin. They're going to come in probably equal measure. Wouldn't you rather choose your pain? Wouldn't you rather choose how it happens? And then it might even just end up happening at the same time when you live right in the center of that bullseye. So make your bed, do your flashcards, challenge yourself. I think you might just stumble upon the meaning of life in the process. 
Okay, now let's go into the comments and questions that came in over the past couple of weeks. And the first is a response to the newsletter I just talked about, which is from Sandy Sammy. And she is actually feeling a little bit differently about this whole choosing pain first and all of that. So let's get into what she said. She says, well, that's funny because I was thinking exactly the opposite right now. I just graduated three months ago. During uni, I worked really hard, participated in many student activities, took many courses in marketing, and acquired two of the hardest languages. After all this, I still can't find a decent job while most of my friends, and even the ones who barely studied in university, are already working. I always choose voluntary pain, but I have to admit it is only getting harder. Short, sad story. I took all my choices with love and passion as my guide, but sometimes the results seem unfair. Hope things change. I will keep fighting till it does. Anyway, that's what I do best. And thanks for the inspiring story. It helped. Yeah, so first of all, I just want to say that this feeling is one of those inevitable things in life. You know, there's always going to be that. But I worked hard, and then there's somebody else who doesn't appear to have worked hard, and they're doing well. And that just feels very, you know, that can be the, the type of thing that builds a quite understandable resentment. But I would suggest that you stick with the part of you that says, I'm going to keep fighting, because you don't always know when the critical mass of success will accumulate to the point where you're satisfied with it. And that's so there's a few layers to this. So one, what is success in the first place? You know, so you have graduated and gotten a degree, you have acquired two of the hardest languages in the world. You're still working on trying to get better at things. You're still working on trying to find a good job and what is necessary for that. But there's a lot of success that's already there, right? And let me use Mandarin Blueprint as an analog for that. Mandarin Blueprint is in many ways a success. We have helped thousands of people reach Mandarin fluency and also learn characters and do all of these various things that are necessary for Mandarin acquisition. And... As a result of that, we can be proud and say we succeeded. And even just the fact that we finished the course, so 3,050 characters, 11,800 words, this was a huge project that took us many years and we finished it, so that's a success. But then you could compare it to you know, other businesses that are teaching Chinese. And you know, we're not number one, so does success mean being number one? Uh, does it mean having, you know, I? This is a little bit inside baseball for what's going on, but we haven't had like a full year where 100% of the months were fully profitable, right? And that maybe that's the goal of success. So my point being that everything is a journey that, you know, despite loads and loads of hard work, it's not necessarily going to always be manifesting as success. In fact, I think there's a cycle. I think it's cyclical. So what happens is that your success breeds complacency, complacency breeds failure, failure breeds learning, learning breeds success, and then success breeds complacency, and complacency breeds failure, and so on and so forth. And so there's this cyclical situation. Um, now, obviously, you can try to recognize that when you're succeeding that this is eventually going to lead to complacency, but it's almost impossible to avoid because when you do get some success, you tend to relax a little bit simply because you weren't relaxing when you were desperate from the failure and needing to learn, right? So then, you, and you should need to relax a little bit. Some, you know, that's a cycle of life too, is like <laughs> that inevitable cycle of, 
oh, I'm working so hard, I should really relax more to when you start relaxing, you go, I'm not doing anything with my life, I need to, you know, I need to get more stuff done. And that's just an endless cycle that we go through. And so it strikes me that you're just in one of these valleys at the moment. But what's the point that you what how do you respond to a point where you're feeling comparatively more failure at the moment you're feeling it's not necessarily true objectively but you're feeling more failure at the moment well what should be the response to failure learn more stuff right so if you're looking for a job then maybe the most important question for you right now should be how to make your resume amazing how to get better at uh interviewing how to um find companies that are looking for your type of talent. Like there's all sorts of things you might need to look for there. Uh, but because, you know, there's a new skill that you'll need to learn about. Now, suppose you really focus on that. You you apply that same energy and love and passion to that project. Well, it seems likely to me since you succeeded in acquiring two languages and you succeeded in getting a degree that you'll succeed in that endeavor. So when you feel like the overall scope of what you're working on has been not what you hoped for specify it more right so say i'm not trying to like expect that my two languages i've learned in my degree just automatically have this glorious emergent result instead i'm going to go they're there and they will help me but what i really need to do is focus on a specific thing called how do I get better at getting a job? Now, next, I would just point out that a lot of the, the discomfort that you feel may be coming from comparing yourself to the others around you, which is a totally understandable and almost impossible to avoid. But the problem with comparing yourself to others around you is that everybody's story has different elements that many of which are unseen to you. So, it could be that the reason somebody got a job is because of some nepotism and like, you know, somebody in their family got them a job and they're actually going to be miserable in that job and they'll eventually be fired two or three years down the line, right? You know, that could be the case and you don't know. And so it could very well be that even though at the moment they've got this good thing going, you know, five years from now, your life situation might look way better than theirs. So, and of course, Really, you just want to be comparing yourself to yourself in the past and have you improved. And like, it sounds like that's what you're going to do anyway. So I hope that just some of the perspectives I've put on this will help. But uh, you have the right attitude, Sandy. And I mean, I really admire you. I think you're a very hard worker. You've been around Mandarin Blueprint for a long time. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry to hear that you're down in this part of the cycle at the moment. But I am very confident that, you know, if you use this sense of, you know, feeling failure at the moment to drive your learning, you will go into the success part of the cycle. And then your problem will be becoming complacent. And so that's a good problem and that's a problem that you want to have. So hopefully that's helpful. And thank you for writing in and sharing your thoughts. We, uh, I'm sure all of us have felt like this at some point. So uh, I appreciate it. Next, we have Steve Muir in the community forum. He says, hello, this might be a very mundane, even silly question, but here it goes. I've worked through pronunciation and am embarking upon the main Mandarin Blueprint method course. I get the theory of making movie scenes and I'm excited about the process of absorbing and acquiring the language, but I'm hung up on writing. Should I write down characters from the start? 
It's what I did from the start when learning Russian. Should I do so with Chinese? I know it's a fairly small thing, but it's become a bit of a block for me. Any advice would be gratefully received. Well, sure, I definitely have advice on this. When you're doing the Hanzi movie method, the props in the scene represent character components. And we start off with very simple character components, things like a horizontal line, or maybe two-stroke component like the left side zhen, which uh, represents person. It's just uh, a pie and a hung. So it's or not a hung, a shu. Uh, so it's got the sort of side stroke and a vertical stroke. Very simple to write. Very few character components are difficult to remember how to write on their own because they're so simple, right? And so by having the prop in your mind's eye from the Henze movie method, you should recognize that by that prop being there, you just write those two strokes or one stroke or three strokes, right? So for example, we often say, use Chuck Norris to be your representation of Zhen because he's just such a such a badass and you know Chuck Norris is the manliest of men so we'll just have him be the representation of it so if in your mind's eye you see Chuck Norris then sure you just write down those two strokes and you've written it correctly and then there will be another uh, prop in the scene that has a simple connection to two or three strokes maybe even just one stroke and that will become your uh, second part of the character so if you have the two props clearly in your memory palace scene then you should easily be able to write these strokes so uh i don't think that writing is the most important skill in chinese but if you can write the character it demonstrates that you have mastery of its internal components and the henza movie method does this for you so when you get a flashcard, it says keyword um you know keyword what and then uh pinyin shen and so you have the Chuck Norris component on the left and you have the Christian cross on the right. You know, so, uh, and the, it's, the meaning is what? So, you know, you have, you come up with a scene with Sherlock Holmes representing SH in the kitchen of your EN set. Maybe it was your elementary school. So uh, the cafeteria of your elementary school representing second tone. So you've got Shen there and in there is, um, you know, Sherlock Holmes, Chuck Norris, and uh, Jesus looking at a Christian cross and doing that Jackie Chan, what? You know, and then there you go, you've got your scene. So the fact that you have Chuck Norris and the Christian cross in the scene means that you should be able to write those, those characters because each are just two strokes. So you should easily be able to write the full character because you can write the two components. So everything gets broken down into its component parts and no one component is hard to write, so you should be able to write it. And so when you see the flashcard come up and it says, keyword what, pinyin shen, then you should be able to write that down and that's how you judge whether you got the flashcard right or wrong. When you flip the flashcard and it shows you the, the character and the stroke order, then you can see whether you did it right. And I think that you will have uh, very little trouble doing this. Now, you don't necessarily need to practice making your handwriting look great. In fact, I would say my Chinese handwriting is probably like that of an elementary school kid, but I can write. I can write, you know, like all of the uh, the characters that I know because I know the components properly, right? So I would say that it's, think of it like this. You should be able to write because that demonstrates that you know the character components. 
but you don't have to write in real life for practical purposes, right? So the, for the most part, you're gonna text and you're gonna write on your keyboard, on your computer, and you're gonna read, right? But you're not gonna need to write letters to people or something like that. So um, hopefully that clarifies what you're looking into. And so, yeah, basically you should know how to do it, but don't worry too much. All right, next we have Marco on Make a Movie for Lu. He says, I think the left side component should be kou and zhi, not zu, giant human feet. So what he's referring to here, I disagree, Marco. It should be uh, giant human feet. And here's why. Because the left side component of zu, when it gets squished to the left, I see what Marco is pointing out. He's saying it doesn't look exactly the same because there's a change that happens to the bottom part of the component, right? And so isn't this just and not zu, which has a different final stroke. The reason why it is, is because if you look at characters that contain this component on the left, it's the semantic component. It relates to the meaning. Well, we have lu. Well, lu means path or road, the type of thing that you would walk on with your feet. How about gun? Well, gun means heel, right? So it also means to follow because you're like following along someone's heels, right? So that also contains this component. There are several components that, or characters that contain this component. And the reason they contain this component is because it has to do with walking or feet in general, right? So the fact that it contains that means that the original meaning is the important part of it. It's so if we, if we change the components to kou and zhi, you'd lose that sense of the semantic part of the character. And that would be a shame because that's what makes Chinese so interesting. So uh, yes, it should still be giant human feet. It's just that some character components, when they get squished to the left, change their appearance slightly, but you're gonna use, remember, you're always gonna use these characters many times over. So this type of mini change, it's the kind of thing that you can worry about when you're studying, going like, oh, maybe I'm gonna forget that there's this tiny change until you've written these characters and seen these characters hundreds, thousands of times. And then you're gonna look back at it and go, I can't believe I was ever worried that I was gonna get confused about this because you, you weren't in the end. Next, we have Brian O'Connor on Ti in context. And uh, so this is an interesting sort of uh, insight into the mind of somebody when they're thinking through a type of uh, sentence or question and realizing that they were uh, they were dividing the sentence at a different place. He says, I was confused about the use of shang and gay in this sentence. So shang means on and gay means to give and sometimes it's used as a preposition like for. Um, so the sentence is, Right, so, and this actually comes from a longer uh, form story about like the, diff uh, the the upgrades in mobile banking and how, how cell phones and smartphones have made uh, life in the monetary world easier. So anyway, it says, first I thought maybe shang was the word meaning give, but if so, why would shang be a part of it? I thought maybe it was upgive, sort of like upload. <laughs> However, I couldn't find this defined as a separate word in Pleco, although Google Translate it as simply give. Yeah, yeah. Second, second. I wondered why wouldn't the sentence mean the same thing without shangge? I couldn't figure out which was the verb, gay or ji, like ji meaning to male. But then I had the an aha moment, <laughs> and I wanted to check in with you to see if I'm right. Maybe shang doesn't go with gay, but instead goes with shou ji yin hang, 
That's correct. So Shoji Yinhang is the bank, uh, the mobile bank, right? So so Shoji Yinhang Shang might mean something like on mobile banking. That is correct. So the sentence is Ni Budan Zai Shoji Yinhang Shang. Right? So the Zai is the is is the um, clue there. So if I have my phone here, I say Zai Shoji Yinhang. Shang, right? So it's on the phone. It's on the magazine. I could say, Zai Zha Zhi Shang. So I have a magazine and I'm looking through it. Zai Bao Zhi Shang, on the newspaper, right? Like, what does it say on the newspaper? And sometimes you can leave out Zai if it's pretty obvious that you're talking about something like a newspaper or a cell phone or a magazine that has things on it, right? You know, words are on the page, right? So you tend to use Shang a lot in this context. But so on the mobile banking, you can uh, mail money to them. And in this case, gay has kind of got a preposition of two, which is what uh, he realizes here. He says, second, I realize that gay doesn't only mean the verb give. It can also mean the prepositions for or to. So would mean to them mail money or mail money to them, right? Am I on the right track or totally off base? No, you figured it out. And like, what's interesting about this is that so I, I, I'm ambivalent about this type of response that you had to this sentence, because on the one hand, you succeeded in understanding the message in the end, which is what helps you uh, learn, acquire a language. But on the other hand, it seems like this probably took you a while. So like, how many more understandable messages could you have gotten during this time? All this time you were spending figuring this out. I, you know, it it's really up and down because you could make the argument that because you took the time to figure this out and you did figure this out, now, every time you run across a sentence that's similar to that, you'll figure it out that way. But just remember that like all of these patterns are going to repeat. So if you don't totally get it right now, it's perfectly fine and maybe even preferable to just let it go and let the, your brain recognize the pattern later when it comes up again. Just, just bear that in mind because you could end up spending a, like too much time uh, figuring out something that your brain would have figured out easily in the future. Now, I get it. Like sometimes you look at something and you're like, I just want to get to the bottom of what the heck this sentence means. And like, that's totally cool. And sometimes that motivation can make you really understand something. So like I said, I'm ambivalent about what the right way to handle that is. I'm just saying that if at any point in the future you feel like, Ugh, I just can't get this right now, it's perfectly fine to leave it for the time being. Because it will come up again. Next from Allison Kerrigan on Tu or Tu in context. This is the character that either means spit on the ground when it's pronounced Tu, third tone, or it means to vomit if it's Tu, right? So she says, I think this actually came from a different lesson as I don't see the sentence in this one, but I'm struggling with this sentence in my flashcards. 我吐了一个早上. So 我吐了一个早上. The translation was something like, I've been throwing up all morning. I want to translate it as I threw up one time this morning. Can you explain why it means all morning, not once, despite having ego in it? Right. So the ego is applied to the zaoshang, right? So uh, you could change the measure word. So for example, if I said tian, then that would mean I've well, let me pick a let me pick another word just because I don't it's, it's gonna end up sounding gross. I'm just like I vomited all day. Uh, let's go with wochula. So I ate all day. I ate for a full day. <laughs> that might have happened at some point, right? So 
That's what I'm measuring is the time. I'm not measuring the amount of times eating, right? So I might say, 我早上吃了一次, could also be fine. That's a, that's a measure word for meals. So 我吃了一顿, right? That would be fine. Or 我吃了一次, which just means one time. I ate one time. So that's how you would say it if you wanted to get across the idea of I, you know, ate one time in the morning, I threw up one time in the morning. That would be how you would say it, you know, 我早上吐了一次, right? So that would mean I threw up one time this morning. And so that's the difference there. You'll notice this come up a lot, like the verb, you know, you have subject, verb, and then how long it happened, right? So totally is gonna, you're going to see that moving forward. Next, a question from Francis Lenny Campos on vocab unlocked from fo. When do we use fo versus doubling up the verb with bu, such as 能否请你 versus 能不能请你? Thanks. So really, the only difference here is kind of formality slash, you know, sounding educated, I guess. You know, so for, and here's the thing. When I say that sometimes things are more formal than others, that doesn't mean you use them less. There are a lot of formal situations in life, you know, anything related to your job, uh, you're at an event, um, you're watching the news, you're experiencing something where you feel like it's better to be polite, right? So these are the very situations. Now, 能不能请你 is just a little bit more casual than 能否请你. But I can imagine that you're trying to be more polite and formal when asking somebody whether or not you can um, take them out to dinner, right? So like, you know, 能否请你 would mean, can I or not, you know, pay for your dinner or take you out to dinner, right? I mean, 请你吃饭 would probably be what comes next. It could be, or it could just be like, like let me pay for this, right? 能否请你. Maybe you've just had coffee and the bill's coming due and you say, oh, that would be understood to be, let me pay for this, right? Um, can I pay for this? And so, 能不能请你 versus 能否请你 is just a matter of formality in which, and you know, I think that 能否请你 sounds a little bit more educated, but sometimes you want to be chill. So it's kind of a mix. That's the difference. Tina Clark on Vocab Unlocked from 觉得 does 觉 imply only internal feelings, emotions, or thoughts? Can it be used to mean uh, feeling tactile uh, sensation? Yeah, no, it can. Uh, for example, uh, is like literally a direct feeling of something, you know? So, and of course, like or or these are your um, various senses, right? So your is your uh, ability to here, your chujue is your tactile touch. That's what the, the sense of touch is called. Chujue. Chu is a, is a ver, uh, word that just means to touch or come in contact with stuff. So your chujue is your feeling of tactile uh, response. So yeah, absolutely can mean tactile. You know, and generally with things like this, with jue or, or like a character like this, when we give you the morpheme, like it means feeling. Uh, you can let the language teach you this stuff. And I, again, I'm not trying to um, shirk responsibility here. I have just answered the question. But what I'm saying is that the reason I know that is because I've just seen lots of words where it clearly means that, right? So I didn't ask the question and then figure it out and learn it in that way. What I did in, instead was just knew that 觉 means something like feeling. And then I heard about like the 
听觉、嗅觉 ，sense of smell， 呃、uh, ，you know， 呃、uh, ，视觉 ，the sense of sight， 呃、uh, ，and 味觉 would be your sense of taste。And then, so you know, like the, the, I learned this, and I was like, okay, well, obviously that's especially chujue. That's sense of touch. That's tactile. That's a ge- a general feeling that isn't just an emotion. I mean, I suppose they're all appearing in consciousness in some way, but uh, yeah. So to some degree, they're all internal sensations. But yeah, you, you get what I'm saying. All right, Reno Mick on vocab unlocked from e koi e wei e shang e xia. So this is from earlier in the. Uh, I think believe this is in phase four, maybe phase three, phase four. Why does Wei's tone change from fourth to second tone? Is this just one of those things to compartmentalize, or is there a grammar rule here somewhere? There's not a rule. However, I would say that there are certain words where it tends to always be second tone, like e Wei,、um, and when it's a little bit more formal, it tends to be Wei.、Um, so, for example. When it's by itself and it's in a conjunction, so like for something, like if it's like way something something are, so that's like for something are do something. So like way wo jia ren are gong zuo. So like I am、uh, working for my family, right? When it's in that formal construction, it tends to be way. But when it's just straight up like for, as in like a simple casual sentence, it tends to be way. Right, and same thing with like, in way versus in way, it, it changes around. So, but then there are some words where it's always fourth tone, like wei shema, right? So it's always fourth tone in the question why wei shema. That's why we would probably say its primary tone is fourth because that's where it comes up more often. But often when it's by itself or and in a more formal context, it's wei in certain words like e wei, it's second tone, and then sometimes it can be both. So yeah, it's not exactly a perfect. System, you know, sometimes, but what? But I will say this: you're likely to be understood in most cases. So whether you say second or fourth tone when it's by itself, you're most likely to be understood. So there's that too, and then you'll pick up on a lot of this stuff through your shadowing as well. Annette Bicknell on vocab unlocked from Chuan. So Chuan means to transmit, transmit, or you know, pass on from one thing to another thing, and so. She says, "For the older ones among us learning, 你能帮我发个传真吗 I had to laugh at 传真 which means to fax.、Uh, so, and the sentence is, 'Can you help me send a fax?' And 传、uh, 真 is kind of it makes sense, right? So you're you're transmitting the real paper. So, like the, by sending a fax, a real piece of paper prints out on the other person's fax machine, right? So." Uh, obviously, it's a bit of a、uh, archaic technology now, but uh, certainly uh, a wonder after the age of dealing with telex for transmitting business messages. It Jun really truly was Chuan transmitted, spread, and passed on to the recipients. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Chinese is full of words like this where you're just like, what a great way to express that idea. Next, we have Brian O'Connor on Kunung in context. He says. How come all of a sudden there is an English word "party" in this sentence? Meanwhile, the party, ta ke neng hui lai. Is this more commonly used in the loner word "pai、uh, which I got from Google? Yeah. So there are some words that in Chinese they just tend to choose the English word. I mean, this might be a bit of a trend, and it could be the kind of thing that changes over time. And maybe ten years from now, nobody will be saying "party." But they'll, you know, they often say like "ningwan the party," and they always say the party, 
you know, because they're Mandarin, such a staccato language, you know, uh, that they say party, like, like as if there are two sounds very clearly as party, party, party. Um, That's one. um, Sometimes people will, like I've seen uh, like TikToks of Chinese people where they're like making fun of a sort of cosmopolitan rich woman who's like every two or three words is an English word. You know, um, woman's the meeting chang fun. Uh, you know, I'm not very good at it because it's like it's weird to go back and forth. But like, yeah, yeah. So they'll just kind of throw in English words all the time. Party is one of those words, and it's um, yeah. A lot of, another one that they tend to throw in is care, like uh, like you care about something. You know, um, care Right. So it's like. They, I don't know why these certain words end up being used, but party is one of them. And so I thought it was smart of our writers to throw that in there because, yeah, they will say that. And I mean, people will also say pai doi. It's not like a ironclad rule that people will just always say party, but they and then like the more Chinese way of saying it would be ju hui, ju hui. Um, I remember when COVID first started, everybody was like, you know, bie ju hui, you know, don't that they'd be on the signs around uh uh the apartment complexes like you know uh don't get you know don't get together that whole early covid stuff and so uh that's sort of the chinese version then there's the loan word pai dui and then a lot of people just say party lindsay harris on simple final i uh e and ni which is uh coming from the pronunciation mastery course she says my partner who speaks to our little one in mandarin asks my little one if she's hungry but doesn't add the look how come how do i know when to use it and when not to use it really you can use it or not use it anytime you want because think about it look indicates a change and hunger is in a constant state of flux so by saying that's perfectly fine like you're just being a little bit more specific saying like oh later you weren't hungry and now you are but you can just say Perfectly fine. Right. No problem to say it like that. You can also say and they're basically they mean the same thing. So uh, use them both uh, to your heart's content. So that concludes our questions from this week's Mandarin Blueprint podcast. As I mentioned before, please sign up for our Mandarin Insights newsletter. If you're interested in keeping in touch with us every two weeks, as I mentioned, it's free. It is our best foot, us putting our best foot forward of what we've learned over our 10 years of learning Mandarin. And I'm sure you'll really enjoy it. It's called Mandarin Insights. The link to sign up for the newsletter is below. And um, I just uh, hope that you guys will enjoy that as you move forward. And like I said, we'll also talk about it on the podcast each time. So buckle up and we've got great stuff going on on social media. Make sure you follow us and subscribe to our various social media platforms. You know, YouTube is Mandarin Blueprint, at Mandarin BP on Twitter, Mandarin Blueprint, all one word on Instagram, and just look for Mandarin Blueprint on the various platforms. We're going to be on TikTok soon. We're on Pinterest. We're on LinkedIn. So, you know, get get a look at our various social media platforms. We're on Facebook, of course. So, yeah, thanks so much for listening and 下次见。